godliness isn't something that just happens. You have to participate with God's Spirit as you're formed by His Word in obedience. So every month I take four areas, my relationships, my prayer life, uh, my understanding of Scripture, and serving, and I say, God, what, what's a way that I could challenge myself? And just kind of, where do I need to be pushed? And so uh, this month, this is what I'm focusing on. In the area of uh, relationships, I'd like to find a discipleship training partner. I don't really know exactly what I mean by this, other than I'd like to find another guy who wants to, at least over the summer months, really try and push me and I, him, into areas of discomfort as it relates to, to discipleship. So sharing our heart, soul, mind, strength, so, uh, goals together, and then really touching base consistently and saying, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? Some of you might say, that's kind of like an accountability partner. Um, maybe, but I, I, I want, I'm thinking of something maybe a little bit more robust. And so I'm going to be praying about that. And if that's something that you're interested in doing, uh, then contact me if you're a guy. But this is something that I'd really like. I'm just learning that it's just so much easier to do something when there's someone else in your life who's helping um, to push you in that direction as well. And I need strong Christian guys in my life. So that's one thing that I'm going to be focusing on. Cell phone limitations for soul. I've just become so distracted from quality prayer time. And when I did an inventory a few weeks ago, a lot of it was just my own pulling out the phone before I'm actually spending time in prayer. So I'm setting some strong limits on myself uh, this month just to kind of recalibrate that. Mind, I'm going to memorize some scripture. Scripture memorization is very, very difficult for me. But when I did the recent Jesus and Buddha uh, public talk, I was reminded of the importance of being able to have scriptures at the ready, being ready in season and out. So I'm going to commit to a few verses, uh, some long, some short, and, and do that. And then strength, spring cleaning, that's on Saturday. I'm going to work hard, even though that doesn't come naturally to me. Not the working hard, but the cleaning and the tidying up. I'm just kind of like, it's good enough around the house. Um, so that's my uh, strength contribution. And um, I did this last month, and it was really cool. I just took $25, and I just started praying, and I said, God, will you um, just inspire me to use this in a way to bless some non-Christian that I know and that I come across in this community at some point during the month? And I prayed about that for not too long, only a few days, and then there was an opportunity, and I ended up getting a, a gift card for someone and just giving it to them randomly and just saying, this, this is for you, God loves you, you know, there it is. And so that's going to be what I'm doing. And I would challenge you to consider doing that the same this month. In June, take, and it doesn't have to be $25, if that's too much for you, then 15 or 5 A lot of it is just the gesture. And just be praying and saying, is there a non-Christian who I'm going to come across that I would just like to have something at the ready that I could bless them with? And, and just to say something like, this is for you, I'm learning to be more generous like Jesus, and I just want you to know that God loves you. No strings attached, and you can walk away. I did that with the junior high students on Tuesday night down here on Baker Street. It was really powerful to see people's reactions. They didn't really know, you know, when you approach someone with a, you know, 16 junior high students, they get a, they're a little, they shrink back a little bit. But then when you say, we're learning to become more generous like Jesus, and we would like you to have this, and we want you to know that God loves you, and have a great night, and you walk away just to watch the expressions on people's faces is, is really great. And so I think it would be really cool if there was 10 of us or 20 of us that over the course of June seeded out generosity amongst people in Nelson. And I'd really encourage you to think and pray that God would bring a, 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 a non-Christian across your path. 
there's lots of ways that we can love and support each other as the family of God, but let's also be asking Jesus to give us an opportunity to, to love people who don't know him. Okay, I'm going to be reading from Mark 4, verses 21 to 34. We're going to be covering a few short teachings this morning. And some of these are going to be pretty familiar to a lot of us, but don't let that stop you kind of rebooting and, and trying to coming into this with a, with a fresh, fresh eyes and a fresh heart. Mark 4, verses 21 to 34. Jesus has just taught the parable of the sower, which we talked about last week. He had his, it was just to his inner circle of the 12, and he was teaching the parable. Or sorry, he talked to the crowds, then he brought in his 12 privately, and he explained the parable of the sower to them. And then he continues. He said, Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on a stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Carefully consider what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And he also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed in the ground, and night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel to the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. And again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all the garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything to them. So if you're just joining us this morning, we've been moving through Mark's gospel, and there's been some themes that have been very, very uh, intentionally put in front of us by Mark in the first um, four chapters of the gospel. Jesus has burst onto the scene. He's showing and telling the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is this rule and reign. We might think of it as like the government of God. What happens if God were to kind of take over? Now, we in the West recoil at that thought, like a theocracy kind of scares us. But in a first century context, that was so hopeful because God is good and God is merciful and God is glorious. And if God was running the show, everything would be thriving and flourishing the way that it's supposed to. And so the longing was, God, we're tired of the kingdoms of this world ruling. We want your kingdom to rule. Jesus comes along and he starts announcing that the kingdom of God has come near. It's come very close. You can almost reach out and touch it. And, and yet, as Jesus talks about this kingdom, as he shows this kingdom it looks very different than other um, political authorities, and certainly the Roman political authority. There's this, this rule and reign expresses itself very differently. It's very powerful, but it's not an overt, oppressive power. It's a very covert, healing, restorative power. The kingdom, it liberates and it heals and it inspires wherever its dominion extends. Unless its dominion extends into ground and into people who are self-righteous and hard-hearted. And then the kingdom gets received as a threat. And we see that early on in Mark. The religious authorities are threatened by Jesus. Even though he's saying things that lead to life, that are, un that are unfolding the truth of God, even though he's doing things that are literally causing people who are in hopeless situations to find new hope in God, they're 
self-righteousness is keeping them from being able to connect with Jesus. They start accusing him of being in league with the devil. He's using the devil's power. They don't, dis- they don't dispute the miracles, but this can't be from God because we're waiting for God's kingdom to come. And that means the king of God's kingdom is God. But Jesus is posturing as if he's the king of the kingdom. He's doing things that the king is supposed to do. So is he saying that he's God? Because if Jesus is saying that he's God, that's blasphemy, and he should pay the price for that. He should be killed. That's why early on in Mark, the religious authorities start scheming and figuring out how they're going to trap him and kill him. Because they're not dumb. They realize he's not posturing as if he's a prophet pointing to the kingdom. In fact, when people ask, where's this kingdom? Where's this kingdom? Jesus says in Luke, you can't look over here or over there and say, oh, there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. It starts in here. And even more to that, through what he says and through what he does, the religious authorities are starting to pick up on something. They're starting to pick up on this idea that Jesus seems to be inferring that the kingdom of God is just as much a person as it is an authority. It's not just where is the kingdom, but who is the kingdom? And Jesus seems to be inserting himself into the answer at every turn. And that's very, very, very dangerous. Because if Jesus is bringing God's rule and reign to bear in this world, Roman authorities are going to take notice because Rome already has a king. His name is Caesar. He's all-powerful. He has the greatest military and economic presence the world has ever known. This world, as we know it, is his, and he lays claim to it. No one has a right to a claim over Caesar. And the religious authorities are going to be resistant to this kingdom of God language because the Sadducees, especially the temple priests, have worked out a pretty sweet deal with Rome where if they just kind of go through the motions, don't speak truth to power, kind of practice Judaism light, then Rome gives them a ton of kickbacks and advantages economically. And so both the religious authorities and what we might think of as as the governing secular authorities, both of those people are starting to take interest in Jesus. The religious authorities do first, but we'll see by the end of Mark's gospel, the Roman authorities are very, very threatened by Jesus. Chapters 1 to 3 of Mark focus on showing Jesus as the kingdom insurrectionist. Wherever he goes, he's overthrowing the established, um, kind of the status quo. Wherever he goes, wherever he teaches, people are, leave that place saying, I have to rethink my entire understanding of the nature of things because I just saw someone get healed. I just saw someone teach a truth that I'm like, I've ever heard before. And I've been listening to good religious teachers my whole life. He's just upsetting the apple cart, but not in a destructive way. It's always constructive. It's always restorative. It's always healing. It's very confusing to people, but it's very, very exciting. And large crowds are following him. And there's this movement of Jesus. We want Jesus to be our king. We're we're starting to see people saying, yeah, like if this kingdom is coming, it'd be great if Jesus was the king because everywhere he goes, there's new life and new hope. Last week, we looked at the parable of the sower which is a parable through which Jesus attempts to explain why there's different responses to his message. The good seed of the gospel gets tossed out. Jesus is saying, I'm tossing it out. It's good seed. This gospel message of hope and new life, God has come to establish his kingdom in a personal form, but the kingdom is going to be established through a death, through an atoning sacrifice, and through resurrection. And that kingdom seed is being spread everywhere. But 
only about a quarter of the time does it find soil upon which it can actually long-term transformatively flourish. Because even though the seed is good, the hearts that receive it aren't necessarily. You can have hard-heartedness, you can have shallowness, you can have hearts that are distracted, and you can have good soil. And Jesus says, not everybody who hears this message is going to respond to it favorably. Not everyone who even receives the gospel immediately is going to bear fruit long-term because a lot of it's going to depend on the heart. And then Jesus continues to teach in the context of his 12 disciples a few more parables that explain where this kingdom of God is going and the nature of this kingdom. So in verse 21, Jesus says to them, do you bring a lamp? Do you bring in a lamp and put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. Remember, Jesus has started teaching in parables and people are like, why don't you just teach, like, just give us the straight goods. Don't, don't obscure anything. Just tell us what you mean. Don't use parables. And Jesus is like, oh, I'm not using the parables to conceal the truth. I'm using them to help people see. He's like, I've come to disclose the kingdom. I'm the light of the world. I haven't come to then make things hidden in secret. I'm using the parables to reveal God's truth. You don't light a candle and then put a bushel over it. You don't invest in a sound system, turn it on, but then mute everything. I've come through my teachings to reveal truth. But, Jesus says, my truth has to be revealed by people engaging with my truth. You have to participate. So I'm teaching in parables so that people who are genuinely spiritually hungry will let the parable sit with them, they'll they'll mull it over in their mind and heart, and they'll God will reveal, I'll reveal truth to them through the parable. But if you're hard-hearted, if you're shallow, if you can't be bothered to wrestle with these truths, then it might seem like things are being hidden from you, but it's really just that you don't want to put in the work. You, you don't have a heart. You're not actually seeking God. So the parables are a bit of a, a kind of a, a test to make sure that we're actually wrestling with this stuff. So Jesus hasn't come to obscure the truth. He's come to make it clear, but he is using parables to kind of weed out those who just kind of want quick, simple answers from those who are interested in really understanding what he and his mission are about. 23, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Consider carefully what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more, whoever will be given more, whoever does not, sorry, whoever, whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. So this is, this is actually a really, really important uh, these uh, three verses to understand, the, remember the context. Jesus is still explaining parables to his inner circle 12. So this is just a closed circle meeting. And he says, with the measure you use, it's going to be measured to you. He's coaching them in the principles of the kingdom. Jesus is saying, you need to listen to my teaching because one day you're going to be teaching this stuff. He's teaching them so that one day when he's gone, and he passes the baton to them and says, go into the world, preaching and baptizing, they're going to be able to do that. Now, when he says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is important to understand in the context of Jesus training the disciples to be that light. And when he says, you know, when he talks about being given according to the measure of the, well, one, one commentator says, what Jesus is getting at here is, According to the measure of your diligence in teaching, will your master add to your knowledge? 
So Jesus is saying, with the measure you use, meaning when you, the measure, sorry, I'm, reset. How you measure this teaching out to other people, it will be measured back to you. And the principle there is very, very simple. Jesus is saying, if I teach something to you, Jeff, and I just kind of spoon out a little bit to other people, I'll spoon back in deeper knowledge and insight. And then you'll spoon out. But, Jeff, if you try and take a big scoop of that knowledge and, and, and seed it in other people's lives and teach other people, I'm going to replace that with more. So this basic principle is Jesus is trying to teach the disciples if you take my teaching and run with it and you measure it out in abundance, I'm going to keep pouring back into you. But if you just give a pittance, or even if worse, if you just receive, if you think that this is just for you, and you're not even thinking about passing this on, paying it forward as it were, then even what you have will be taken from you. You'll find that the knowledge, the insight will slowly atrophy and wither and it will die. And, and here's, here's the insight that Jesus, I think, would want us all to hear this morning. Because even though he's speaking to the 12, this has application for all of us. And that is this. Teachers of the kingdom will get more kingdom insight and power through which to teach. And you're like, okay, well, Jeff, you're a teacher. And I know a few teachers of the kingdom, but I'm not a teacher of the kingdom. But that's actually not true. Because if you're a Christian, you're a disciple. And a disciple is someone who's learning from Jesus how to live. But part of what it means to learn from Jesus how to, how to live is to help other people under our authority or in our, our relationships learn from Jesus how to live. Disciples disciple other people. Disciples make disciples. And what Jesus is saying is that there's going to be some people who aren't experiencing a consistent flow of God's power and insight uh, into their lives and he says it's because God is trying to, he wants to use them and teach others through them, but they're just keeping it here. And they're hoarding it. And maybe the excuse is, I don't know enough, so I don't know enough to teach people, or I don't know enough of my Bible, or I'm not that wise or whatever. But the point of Jesus is saying, right, but the way you get more wise is to meet out what you've been given, and then I'll add more to you. And then you'll, I'll, I'll, I'll pour wisdom into you. And so this, this little these three little verses, I think, offer a real challenge to us because they say, who are you discipling? Who are you teaching? For some of us, that, that might be our children. It might be some coworkers. It might be a friend. It might be Sunday school. But we're all called to be teachers within the kingdom. And yes, you might only have a, a teaspoon bit of knowledge from your perspective. You're like, I don't know how this could help. But Jesus says, but use it though, and then I'll give you more. Don't Hesitate from using it because you look at it from a human perspective and say, oh, I don't really see how this is going to be of use to anybody. That person over there, they can, they can rain buckets down. I'll just let them do it. No. There's people that only you can touch. There's people that only you can reach. There's people who's, who, who can only be brought closer to God because of you and your experiences. God wants to use you, wants to use all of us. He scatters us out from this place on Sundays so that in the rest of the week we can teach and help people. So let's be a people who, no matter what we've been given, we, we, we figure out ways to pay it forward. Teaching Sunday school, um, contributing in small groups, uh, starting a book study, uh, leading a, a Bible study, whatever it is, conversations. Whenever God teaches you something, 
pass it along to someone else. God's just teaching me this, and I'm learning this. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you more and more and more. Verse 26, he also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. Like a man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel on the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Now remember, parable of the sower. Seed gets sown, but only in the good soil does the seed take root and lead to a huge crop. And so in the disciples hearing that, they're probably thinking, well, if everything is so depend- if everything depends on the soil, how is this kingdom of God thing ever going to take off? Like, they're looking at each other around the room. Remember, this is a real motley crew. And they're like, if everything depends on the soil in our hearts and everyone's sitting here, this movement is going to go down quick. And this is this, and, and you know, Jesus te- is teaching here to say, yes, your soil is important, but it's not the only power at work. There's another power at work. The kingdom of God, the gospel, is a seed that is at work whether or not you even realize it. Once the kingdom of God gets inside of you, once you receive the kingdom, ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, whether you sleep or get up, God is at work in your life. I don't really feel it. Yeah. You might not feel it, but it doesn't change that objectively God is at work in the secret place. I don't see anything. Yeah, you might not. When a farmer plants seeds and buries it and goes to bed and wakes up, he doesn't say, oh, there's no crop. Nothing's happening. This, is a, this whole project is a failure. I'm selling my farm. I'm giving up. Flip the table. No, you, you have to be patient and wait. Because a huge amount of growth in farming happens underground. And a huge amount of growth spiritually happens underground, even without our awareness. And yes, you do need to do things to keep the soil of your heart good. But Jesus says the Christian life isn't a project of self-will. God's power is at work in you. The gospel itself, when it gets into your heart, will germinate and it will do a work. You have a power in you that is working even when you're doubting, even when you're um, making foolish decisions, even when you're unaware. God is active in your life all the time. God's power is at work. Wherever the kingdom is established, God's power is at work. So don't judge by what's obvious or observable. Don't hang your faith or the confidence of your faith on feelings or whether it seems like things are going well. God is at work in your life. There is a hidden power that will produce a crop if you don't give up farming. You're not in this on your own. God is working in you. Verse 30, again, Jesus said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? Notice something. Jesus himself is, is playing with the best way to figure out how to explain the kingdom of God, which means the kingdom of God is a big concept. You can't actually just say, the kingdom of God is this. I talk about it as the rule and reign of God, but there's a thousand different ways. It's like a diamond. You, you, you can't take in the full beauty of a diamond all at once. You have to turn it over. And you can look at it from different angles and say, oh, that's beautiful, that's, that's interesting. Oh, but you can't, but tell me about this diamond. Capture the fullness of it. Ugh. And that's what Jesus is trying to do with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is something that I can't just put in one parable. I've got to use a whole bunch. What's the best way to describe it? Well, it's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground, yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. 
Why is Jesus teaching this? Again, God's kingdom was coming, and Jesus is talking about these really um, seemingly weak, small parables. The kingdom's like the seed. The kingdom's like, in other gospels, it talks about the kingdom's like yeast and dough. It's not this powerful metaphor of this king, this conquering army, this power, this, this monolithic power from heaven. It's very vulnerable and small and almost seemingly irrelevant and insignificant. So the disciples are hearing this and they're thinking, well, how are we ever going to, how is this going to make a difference? Like, look at us. We're 12. We're not much of anything. Jesus, you're awesome. We've been watching your ministry for years now. And yeah, it's, there's a lot of popularity, but look around us. Like Rome, like Caesar is king. How, how is this going to amount to anything? And Jesus says, now you have to understand the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And you can't look at it and say, hey, look at the 12 here. Look at the, where the kingdom is breaking in here. It's never going to make a dent. It's never going to be able to make a dent in the world. Jesus says, no, 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 you're seeing it wrong. There's a divine principle in operation in the kingdom of God. And he says, you have to look to a mustard seed to understand it. It's hard to see it even, but here's our mustard seed. Uh, This isn't the mustard seed that Jesus would have had. This is our, uh, um, this is the mustard seed that's found in our climate and culture. Uh, This is the mustard seed that is uh, grown indigenous to the Middle uh, Middle East. That mustard seed on the screen is smaller than this mustard seed. This is a big one compared to those. So there's a stock, the little black bits. Those, Those are the mustard seeds. The mustard seed in Jesus' day, some people classified it as a malignant weed. It wasn't a weed, but they classified it as a weed because the mustard seed had takeover properties. In fact, Pliny the Elder, who was a Roman naturalist and philosopher, he wrote a book called Natural History, published it about 40 years after Jesus was resurrected. wasn't a believer. Um, He said, the mustard seed is extremely beneficial for health, but it grows entirely wild, though it is improved by being transplanted. But on the other hand, once it has been sown, it is scarcely possible to get the place free of it as the seed, when it falls, germinates at once. So Jesus is saying the kingdom of God, it looks small. It looks, it looks insignificant. I'll give you that. This movement that we're doing, it hardly looks like it's getting off the ground. And even if it does, what dent could it possibly make? But I need you to understand the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. That once it gets planted, it has takeover properties. And it is aggressive. And it will overtake the kingdoms of this world. It will overtake these power structures that you believe are impervious to any kind of destruction or harm or overthrow. Jesus is offering an image of a fertile, active plant that takes root where it's not supposed to take root, and then it becomes unstoppable. The kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, is an offensive, encroaching, non-domesticated force. It is wild and it is aggressive. And it will inevitably take over the environment in which it has been planted. And so it's dangerous to existing gardens. 
Because just one seed will overtake everything. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is dangerous because just one little seed of God's truth, just one little spark, and everything can be changed. God's power gets unleashed in the most tiny and seemingly insignificant of words, actions, preaching, a teaching, a gesture, and God's power is released. Do you and I live in that kind of awareness of God's power in our lives? Do we, do we honestly understand that all God needs is an inch and then he'll take more than a mile? The kingdom of God is something amazing and it is powerful. There might be people here who think, what could God ever do in my life given that I have this in my life? I have this in my past. I have this habit in my life. I have this disposition. I have this personality. I have this temperament. Sure, maybe God can do something. He can, he can rearrange the furniture a little bit, but I'm going to always have to carry this. I'm gonna always, this is always going to have to be part of my life. And this parable would challenge that uh, pretty directly. There's nothing, there's no obstacle in your life that is too big for God. You know, when the disciples, remember the context of this teaching, they're looking around, and all they see around them are statues to Caesar, monuments to the glory and power of Rome. It is very clear from a human point of view who's in charge, who rules the world. Rome does, Caesar does. If you would have told the disciples that you fast forward 2,000 years and now people go on field trips to Europe to study the former glory of Rome, to study the former might of Rome, and the kingdom of God is now viral globally. So much so that the average Christian now in the world is a black Pentecostal African woman. They would not have believed you. They, they couldn't have fathomed it. But Jesus says, see, that the kingdom's different. It doesn't start with power. It starts in smallness and in apparent weakness. But from it, amazing things will happen. And it's unstoppable. It's inevitable. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. Two closing points. Number one, the grand glorious, redemptive power of the gospel almost always begins small and hidden and seemingly insignificant in our lives. That's why in the prophet Zechariah, God says, don't despise the day of small beginnings. Don't despise the day of small beginnings for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. The grand, glorious, redemptive power of the gospel often starts very small. And a lot of people, because it starts small, and because it's not overwhelming them, they think nothing's happening, and they walk away. They're like the farmer. They get up the next day, and they say, oh, nothing's happening. Oh, sell the farm. This isn't working. Farming doesn't work. Agriculture's a joke, everybody. And they walk away. You don't do, no, don't do that. 
what is God calling you to do? He will almost always call you to something that demands that you have to start very, 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 very small. One step, one email, one phone call, one conversation. And it's easy to look at it and say, why bother, really? I mean, what, what consequence could possibly come from this? Even if God's calling me to it, I can't really see where it's going to go. So, I don't know, maybe I'll just shelve it. I'll push it aside. Don't do that. You might be, right now, in a day of small beginnings. God might be putting something in your heart. Maybe it's been there for a while now, but you haven't taken action on it because you're like, well, I don't really see where it could go. It's not, that's not that big a deal. Or maybe you have a grand vision for something, but you don't know where to start. And you're frustrated that you'd have to start small. If you're in a day of small beginnings, take heart because God rejoices to see the work begin. And if you're faithful in the little things, he's going to bring friends to encourage you. He's going to help you overcome any obstacles that the enemy puts in your place. He's going to encourage you by by his word and by his spirit. He will lead you into victory if you keep pressing toward the prize. He's faithful. He didn't make this investment in you so that it could just sit there. You're to invest it. You're to do something with it. And then number two, like a mustard seed, the kingdom of God is inevitable and it's unstoppable because the seed of the kingdom itself is the Lord Almighty who unleashes power through weakness and smallness. Jesus says in John 12, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And what Jesus was referring to was himself at the cross. Look at the cross. The gospel of the kingdom is that the seed promised to Adam and Eve back in Genesis. This seed dies. But in dying, it unleashes forgiveness and hope and love for all people. As a Christian, you are part of an inevitable, unstoppable kingdom. And my question to you this morning is, what is the part that you are being called to play within that kingdom? Your first step may be a very, very small one, but don't let that discourage you. God has an encouraging habit of taking mustard seeds and growing them into something spectacular and big. Let's pray. God, as we close our time in worship and transition to breaking bread together, would um, would your word challenge us? We thank you that the kingdom comes in smallness and it, and it finds soil in weak things and in broken things. That's who we are, God. We're broken vessels, but we want you to use us individually and as a community to be a light to, this, to the city of Nelson and beyond. Do your work in us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. During this final song, if, there, if you are, if there is something small that you need to move into, if there's something that you feel like, um, if you're in a place of small beginnings, if there's something that God is just gently needling you on and saying, I want you to have this conversation, I want you to do this, I invite you to come forward and you can take a little mustard seed. It'll be easy to lose, so don't lose it. But maybe put it in your pocket, uh, put it somewhere and just take it and just take it out today and over the next few days and just look at it and pray and say, God, this is a small thing I think you're calling me to. I don't know where it's going to go. Maybe I'm scared. Maybe I'm excited. Uh, but I, th- I think I know what the next step is.
And so if you feel like that's you, then uh, feel free at any point during the next song to come forward and just take a mustard seed and take that with you this week.